Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome to Politics Brief. If you watch the video of two protesters with Senator Jeff Flake in an elevator during the Kavanaugh hearings, if you saw them confront him with so much anger at the way women have been treated for so long, the way they said to a U.S. senator, don't look away from me, look at me and tell me it doesn't matter. If you look at the way Flake changed his position afterwards, it's all becoming clear that something absolutely remarkable is taking place in America right now. This is very much the subject of Rebecca Traister's new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. The book combines a kind of history of women's uprisings with an analysis of the Me Too movement. Traister has written for New York Magazine, Elle, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. And her last book was called All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation. Rebecca Traister and I spoke on the very day that Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh both testified about her sexual assault allegations. Rebecca, there's no way to avoid this. We are talking now just hours after the Senate Judiciary Committee has done its questioning. There was a very specific story being told by Professor Ford as well as as, as Ramirez and and others, and a very particular milieu as well. Mm -hmm. What did the specifics tell you? The specifics of their stories. Yeah. Well, we are getting a very full and detailed view of cultures around wealth, white, fundamentally patriarchal power centers that begin in, you know, when people are teenagers. The prep school, the, the you know, Deborah Ramirez's story, which was about how she was an outsider to this very elite, um, fratty, hard-drinking, badly-behaved, relatively repercussion-free social circle of extremely wealthy, privileged white men who were all on paths toward immense power. And the narrative of it was, when I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. Boys will be boys. Right. Who who amongst us has not, right? Like that's, and that's a, again, that's about the sort of invisibility of certain kinds of power abuses. Um, I write about in the book and something that I've, I've become kind of obsessed with and thinking both about how, for example, a Black Lives Matter movement has been talked about in a mainstream press and then watching the same kinds of things around the Me Too movement. It's helped me to understand a little bit about how when power is abused in the direction that is sort of natural, the more powerful do something bad or harmful or even violent to the less powerful. It's sort of invisible, right? Oh, oh, he was a drunk boy. Of course he did this. Like, what young man, what 17-year-old healthy young man with a sex drive and a keg, like, wouldn't, hasn't behaved that way? It's like indiscernible as harm in some way. In your book, Good and Mad, you write very early in the book, I am a white woman who has been angry in my life and my work, occasionally on my own behalf, but more often about politics, about inequity and the grotesque unfairness of the world and this country, how it was built, and who it still excludes and systematically diminished. And then you're off to the races. (laughs) Um, This book is in large measure about 
anger, the legitimacy of anger, the employment of anger historically toward toward good. Um, what set you off on it? Um, it was an attempt to get my thoughts clear after the election. I was. Um, Did that take some doing? Oh God, yes. I didn't know. I was. I was wrestling with what my job was. I was wrestling with what my work was. How do you mean? I was very muddy about what the story was that I needed to tell. I have to say that I haven't. I haven't talked about this before, and um, there's a degree to which I was deeply obsessed by the question of the white women. I was acutely aware of my identity um, as a white woman. The the degree to which my work has been blinkered by my whiteness, my work on feminism, the degree to which I have been pushed to be better, to think more clearly about race and class. Um, that's been a big part of my evolution as a writer. And there was something that had happened right before the election. I'd been on part of a podcast with a bunch of women, and one of them had said about the white young white men who was like the classic Bernie supporter, like she had said something like, where are you guys out there trying to to persuade people to vote for Hillary? Because it's your guys, it's white men who are not voting for her. Where are the left white guys? Go get your boys, right? That was the phrase that she'd used. Go get your boys, right? And it was not a surprise to me that white women had voted for Donald Trump. But I was acutely aware of this demographic, and I felt some responsibility. And I'm very sympathetic to the argument, which is like, leave them be. It is not worth the investment in trying to persuade white women to be on our side. There's a woman in my book, Jess Morales, who says she worked on the Hillary campaign, and she was like, look, this was about persuading white women to not be Phyllis Schlafly, and that has never, ever worked. They're always going to be Phyllis Schlafly, right? I understand and have sympathy with that. Like, just let them rot, right? You, they want to they want to support a system that fundamentally oppresses them and that oppresses other people. Great. But I felt some that that phrase go get your boys was <laughs> echoing in my own head and I think that I part of what I wanted to do was also think about white women and what impulses and messages are at work on white women. And um, I felt like it was my responsibility to examine race from the perspective of, of whiteness in conjunction with looking at gender. And then the anger. So I, I was feeling that, but I wasn't sure how to do it. Right. I, I And that was the question about my work. How do I do that? What do I do? What is my job? What's my what's the story here? But everything was so clouded. And I was on a walk with my husband um, between Christmas and New Year's of that year, so 2016 to 2017. And I was trying to explain to him the despair I was feeling about, like, I, not knowing what my role was supposed to be. What was, I, what was my work going to be? Professionally. Professionally, yeah. And um, I said, I just can't think straight, Darius. I'm, I'm so mad. And he was like, well, maybe that's what your work is. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, maybe that's what you need to write about is the anger. And as soon as he said it, he's not a writer. Um, he, it was just something he was responding to. and what, But suddenly in that... In that exchange, I'm not exaggerating when I said it was the first feeling of, like, clarity and lightness in my head that I'd had at that point in two months. It, it is interesting that the a lot of the exemplars of constructive anger in the book, historically, are black women. Mm-hmm. Um, Shirley Chisholm, Florence Kennedy, who I remember well, watching on public access television for hours um, in her great hats. Uh, Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course, the, the mother of, of Emmett Till. 
that's not by any coincidence. That's not no. uh, that's not by accident. No, not at all. Women of color have often been not only the leading activists, organizers, and the the people who who first gave voice and form to a lot of the transformative social and political movements that have that have reshaped America. Um, they also often have done the thinking. I mean, uh, Polly Murray, who's somebody I write about in this book, Polly Murray was credited by both Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg for the intellectual work she did laying out the framework for racial and gendered inequity in this country and and laying the groundwork for the laws that would ultimately wind up um, protecting and uh, trying to ameliorate the kind of gendered and racial inequality that she was she was trying to address. She's so very rarely credited as this leader. Um, and Florence Kennedy, I haven't heard the name Florence Kennedy in years. Yes. I mean, she's very much of the generation of Gloria Steinem or a little even, even she older. She was her speaking, she and, she and Gloria Steinem were speaking partners Constantly. on the road, yes. Right. T- t- tell us a little bit about Florence Kennedy. So Florence Kennedy was a, a black feminist lawyer. Um, she was outrageous for <laughs> her time, but I think she would be outrageous now. I think so. <laughs> In her demeanor and her willingness to be vocally profanely, unapologetically, and joyfully pissed off about everything she was pissed off about. And there was a lot of it. She was mad about racism. She was mad about sexism. And she wasn't going to play nice at all. Now, you wrote about a time when you were were working in a a male-dominated office, Mm -hmm. and you found yourself in tears. You were angry and you were crying. Mm -hmm. Until you write a chilly, hard-ass manager, those are in quotes, Mm -hmm. a woman, pulled you into a stairway and said to you, they don't know you're furious. They think you're sad and will be pleased because they got to you. Mm-hmm. Where, where were you working? What was going on? <laughs> uh, it was at the New York Observer. Um, I don't, I've never talked about this with the woman who said it, and I don't know if she re- even remembers. Um, and I don't remember, to be honest, I don't remember what I was angry about. Um, I mean, I can take guesses, but um, I was, the thing that was astounding to me is that this is a person who had always intimidated me because she wasn't, there was nothing outwardly emotional, no sense that she was paying close attention to the experiences of the people. She was just, she was an incredibly efficient, incredibly talented manager of people um, and of copy. (laughs) And the fact that she saw in sort of what was a split second Something that I wouldn't have been able to describe as soon as she said it. I was like, I am furious. Of course I'm fu- Like, of course I'm crying because I'm furious. I think that's such a common experience for women. Which is to express what outwardly seems sa- the sadness, but inside yes. is rage. Yes. Um, it's hammered home to us so often that rage, our rage is fundamentally inexpressible because if we express it, we will not be heard. We will not be taken seriously. We'll be seen as, you know, crazy, unhinged, ball-busting, unattractive, invalid, marginal. Like it will go badly for us if we express our anger directly. And I think that I write about this in the book that one of the tactics that so many of us turn to, we cry, which is a fundamentally more acceptable um, mode of emotion for women. It's, it is in part because of what that manager said to me. It will be understood as vulnerability, which is more acceptable in to women. Me, to me. Right. Um, now, that's especially true for white women. By the way, there's, an, uh, there's a racial dynamic in terms of crying as being something that can elicit sympathy. And uh, that sympathy is very much more likely to accrue to a crying woman if she is white. 
Um, what are you saying? What is what is a woman of color more likely to do? Well, women of color have written about this very beautifully, that the vision of the traditionally vulnerable femininity um, that garners sympathy or empathy is very often the suffering white woman. The crying black woman is doesn't have that same kind of imaginative hold. And more than that, white women's tears have often been used... <laughs> to cover for instances of racism. Um, I mean, it's the the vision of the suffering white woman and the need to protect her has often been the cover for lynching, for, um, you know, for for racialized racist violence. So I just want to, you know, when we talk about the tears of women being something that makes them vulnerable, that is a dynamic that applies, especially if you are a white woman. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. I really do hope men read this book in, in great numbers as well as women. And for me, there was a, an especially affecting moment that I'm going to touch on. Your husband comes to you. It's just as the Me Too movement is really exploding. And he says, I'm shocked. The profusion of it, the violence of it, the horror of so many stories that we've heard about in the last year about sexual harassment and sexual assault. It was all shocking to him, shocking to me. And he's coming to you in some way for what you call feminist absolution. So what's to be learned here? What can you tell him? And really, by extension, what can you tell me? Well, I think that this, I my hope is that this is a moment of education and readjustment of the, the view of of a full human experience for a lot of men who have just not seen the have not realized how common, how ubiquitous, how everyday these kinds of experiences are. Aren't all men blinkered to some degree? Sure. This is part of opening eyes. Men are learning something about the experience of not being men in the world that they've been blind to. Much of the learning comes out in terms of defensiveness or for some, for some, and it's a process. And I don't, I don't, I'm and worry actually, about you know thinking about oh my god in high school maybe I said something terrible I made a bad joke in the office that's what you, and and this is an angry book that I've written and I am very angry at men and I talk about the complexities of um, the tricks of a women's movement or a feminist movement is that it asks you to identify as your oppressor. A group of people who are your intimates, your loved ones, your the men you share beds with and families with and who are your brothers and your fathers and your sons and your friends. It asks of us to complicate those incredibly intimate relationships that are often loving and that are often based in need and dependence on who, the men on whom we rely. I really do feel for the men for whom this is difficult. We are changing rules partway through the game. That's what this process is asking us to do. That is hard. If, but there's no other way to do it. We don't get to just start fresh with a generation starting now, right? If you actually want to change the way that the power structures work and the abuses that they permit, and you want to say, actually, we, we don't want to have those abuses anymore. We want to make them, them no longer acceptable. That is going to mean that there are some people who are caught in the middle, who entered the world with one set of expectations and one set of assumptions about how they could behave and are being told halfway through that that's no longer acceptable. And that is really that has a cost. It has a toll. And I do feel for those guys. That doesn't mean that I don't think the process is necessary and I stand behind it. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Most of the people that I know who are 
fervent proponents of the Me Too movement and of this difficult, painful process are incredibly conflicted about it, too. We don't want to be the police who determine if somebody should lose their job or not lose their job. And a lot of the anti-Me Too stuff says, oh, it lacks nuance and it's just a bunch of executioners. No, everybody I know who is behind this movement, you know, most um, intensely and fervently feels incredible conflict. And so I feel tremendous sympathy for the guys, too. The book, and it's a remarkable one, is Good and Mad. Rebecca Traister, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, David. Rebecca Traister's new book is called Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash elections.